Hello, and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is the amazing Aya Badir, a Lebanese engineer, interactive artist, social activist, and founder and inventor of Little Bits, the easy-to-use electronic building blocks used by millions of children all over the world. Growing up in Beirut, I always had a deep love of design and engineering, and she focused her career making engineering fun, whilst also on democratizing open source hardware to ensure that tech education and innovation became accessible to all, regardless of age, gender, or background. She is also the co-founder of the Open Hardware Summit, a TED Senior Fellow and an alumna of the MIT Media Lab. In this conversation, we discuss her passion for making engineering fun, her call to activism in Lebanon, and even the significance of someone like Elon Musk owning Twitter and the impact that could have. Here is my conversation with Aya Badir. Aya, thank you so much for joining me today. With all my interviews, I always like to go back in time. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and what were some experiences that shaped you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. What was I like growing up? I think if you'd poll some of my friends, teachers, and and definitely my parents, they would tell you that I was quite a mischievous child. I didn't like rules very much. I didn't like to be told not to do things. I had a lot of energy and I was very much a tinkerer, you know, did things with my hands, broke things open, had a lot of curiosity, got myself in trouble. Uh, I like, I was good academically, uh, and that was the reason I got away with a lot of these things, because even though I would be, you know, talking a lot in class or or doing little, you know, mischievous things, I still would get good grades, so they couldn't sort of really get angry with me. But at the same time, I definitely felt um, like, you know, the traditional sort of schooling was not really, you know, suited for my energy level and kind of personality type. And I think that's definitely affected Um, me as an adult and kind of the choices that I've made in my career for sure. Absolutely and I read somewhere that your mother was a huge influence because growing up a lot of mums of my generation I think we're the same generation despite the country and despite the culture a lot of mums were at home so can you tell me a bit more about how your mum inspired you? Absolutely. My mom has been a huge inspiration to myself and my sisters. I have three sisters. We're four girls in the house. And we grew up in Lebanon in the Arab world. And even though things are changing and improving, you know, for the most part, Lebanon is a very patriarchal society and many uh, women uh, work, but they are the primary caregivers and they are really considered sort of heads of the household in a lot of the responsibilities. And many of them, many of my friends' moms were at home. Um, my mom always worked. My mom was work was when I was uh, in school in high school. She was doing her masters. Uh, we graduated around the same time, and when she started work, I had you know just started university. And when I would come home, when I was you know even a kid, uh, and I would say you know can you help me with my homework? She would say I have my own homework. I don't have time mm-hmm. to help you. And at the time, it used to make us my, my sisters and I angry, but. 
I think we didn't realize how much of a you know a standard it set and what a role model she was because she showed us that she you know was an individual had her own career her own ambitions and she not needed to focus on herself and we needed to do the same for us and it really did affect us and we're all very independent in our you know lives and in our careers and I think that was very important. She was also somebody who was passionate about her work. She would, uh, you know, it wasn't like clocking in and clocking out. She would, you know, read things and research things when she was home. She would talk about it when she went out to dinner with friends. And uh, and so it really was an example of, of somebody that, you know, poured energy and, and excitement into their work. And I think it definitely uh, affected the way we, we look at ourselves sort of in society and in the workforce. That's fantastic. What was her master's in? What was she doing? She did a master's in money and banking and she became a banker, but she became a banker in an interesting kind of angle. She uh, ran, she started the first uh, electronic banking and credit card department in Lebanon, brought credit cards to the country. Uh, and so, you know, her first sort of 10 years of her life was convincing people that a piece of plastic it was something that you could pay with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw her introduce that and kind of uh, uh, fight a lot of either apathy or, or, um, or doubt, uh, uh, you know, around the country. And then she went to another bank where she basically started, sort of restructured an electronic banking department and sort of worked on a lot of modern technologies to improve, to create alternatives to banking, essentially. And she's been doing that for, you know, about 25 years now. What a woman. That's amazing. That is really fantastic. I didn't know that. And you obviously went to university. I know you studied computer engineering and then you did your master's at MIT. How pivotal was your time at MIT in relation to the career path you took? I think it was hugely influential. I did. So, you know, like I said, I was um, I was a tinker and I was sort of science uh, leaning when I was growing up. And so my parents and teachers said I owed it to myself to study engineering. And so I did computer engineering as an undergrad in, in Beirut. It was a very good school, the American University of Beirut. Um, but the program was very traditional, very Uh, very academic, very book focused, very much multiple choice. And to be honest, I hated it. And I wanted to quit every semester. And I remember very well many scenes where I would sit with my family, with my parents in the living room crying, saying, I want to quit. I hate, I hate engineering. This is not at all what I thought it would be. Um, And I thought it was going to be something like Inspector Gadget, where you were going to, you know, or like Bill Nye, the science guy, where you would invent all these things and you would come up with experiments. And it was nothing like this. Um, and so I wanted to quit and I made a deal, you know, like, like any immigrant, um, kind of family does, uh, you know, they put a lot of importance on sort of the, the profession, uh, that, and the label of the profession that you're pursuing. My parents, they made a deal with me, you know, finish engineering, get a degree in engineering, and then you could do whatever you want to be a designer if you want, or do something else. Um, and so I kind of accepted and I, and I went with it, but I, my intention was that I was going to leave you know, my undergrad and go into design and I was going to do something completely different, artistic and not at all related to any technology. Um, But in my third year of engineering, I went to Boston. My sister, eldest sister happened to be doing a master's at MIT uh, and I went to visit her in Boston and I spent, um, you know, a month, a couple of months doing an internship there. And I uh, went and I discovered, uh, sort of fell upon the Media Lab because I was interested in hearing a talk by the founder of IDEO, the design agency. And he was giving a talk at a place on MIT campus called the Media Lab. 
And so I went there and suddenly I came across this place that was this huge, you know, almost fishbowl looking place uh, with a giant glass front uh, sort of um, screen. Uh, and inside of it were robots and Lego towers and uh, and um, and these giant kind of uh, metal cutting machines and uh, and and these sort of cars that look like they were from the future. And I was like, "What is this place? This is like a playground. Uh, I'm I'm so drawn to this place." I poked around, asked around, and understood that this was a department within MIT called the Media Lab uh, that operated sort of independently and was all about how to sort of um, invent the future, how to use uh, technology for applications in uh, for society, for activism, for art, and generally for sort of uh, sort of scientific discovery. Uh, and I became obsessed with that place. I ended up applying to uh, to that place for my master's degree, um, and it was the only place I applied to. Um, and I got in, and it really did change the course of my career. I saw a new side of engineering that was much more hands-on, project-based, that was all about, you know, curiosity-driven exploration, um, very much about sort of thinking of a problem in society, in uh, not in society, a problem in the world that you wanted to address, um, and, and then backwards from there, coming up with, you know, the, the technology that was needed, as opposed to being very much more kind of functional and much more iterative uh, in, in our process. And um, people there were so interesting. They had backgrounds in art, in dance, in social sciences, in cognitive sciences. It was all these sort of mixed people that had curiosities in many different things. They were musicians. They were, uh, you know, really, really um, diverse in their thinking and their backgrounds. And it felt like much more of a place, you know, that was welcoming to me. And I ended up sort of pursuing an entire career in this idea of sort of using technology for social good, using technology to um, advance uh, missions in society for activism, always very, very big focus on the importance of design and education uh, and community in the process. And so I, I, I really do think those couple of years shaped the rest of my life. It's really interesting because when I looked into your studies and your work history and obviously the founding of Little Bits, I noticed that there were these themes that community was obviously a huge one. And the other things were design and technology and activism. And it's literally all those themes have sewn together throughout your career. And I think if people look at you and they think, oh, she's, you know, techie, she's an engineer, they're actually missing a massive chunk about who you are. And so the, these are things that I want to touch on in the interview. But obviously, Little Bits was an idea that came to fruition and ended up a business. I know we're not going to focus a whole interview on this, but can you tell me about how Little Bits came to be and what was the original mission? Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of the impetus behind Little Bits came from my personal experience. Um, I mentioned before I was studying engineering. I went into engineering because I had genuine interest in the field. I wanted to be Inspector Gadget. I wanted to, you know, invent these things and, um, you know, and, and imagine the future. And when I did study engineering, it was so boring and it was really not, it didn't feel like it was for me. And it felt like not creative. It felt not fun. It felt not playful. And it felt really not for women. Um, not felt it. In fact, it was, you know, we were 
I think if I remember correctly, we were around eight uh, eight women in our in my undergrad among about eighty men. So it really didn't feel uh, like the profession that I thought it could be. And then when I went to the media lab, I noticed that no, it's just it's a form of instruction that is wrong. And so little bits, the the mission and the idea behind little bits is that can we uh, make technology and engineering fun? Can we make it creative? Can we make it playful? Can we make it inclusive? Can we make it not just for engineers? Uh, and, and one big sort of inspiration uh, product or platform was Lego. Lego is a uh, toy by, you know, sort of many sort of standards. But at the same time, I believe Lego created a revolution in the generations it started because it basically was telling a whole generation of kids uh, you don't have to have a degree in architecture or engineering to be able to make a bridge, to make a building, to make a wall, to make uh, things stand. And so you would learn brick by brick. You would assemble things in a very easy way and you would get into more and more complex projects, just one brick at a time. And I think it inspired a whole generation of architects, of designers, of structural engineers, of people that really felt that they could manipulate the three-dimensional space that they occupied. But when the world changed and when the brick became no longer a plastic brick that had, uh, that had uh, you know, straight sides, and now the brick is an electronic brick because of our phones, our screens, our all technology around us, you know, what, what is now the brick of the future? What is, how, how do we sit on the floor, uh, pick up a bunch of pieces, assemble them together and make a phone and make a robot and make a car and make um, a, a remote control thermostat? How do we make um, a, you know, a light sensing uh, wall? How do you make things that are of the current uh, generation if you don't have a brick of this generation? And so Little Bits essentially uh, in, in its first, in its early iterations, I called it the electronic uh, building block for the 21st century, the electronic, and yeah, it was called early at the time, I think might've been Bloomberg Magazine, called it the Lego for the iPad generation. So uh, that's how it started. You know, I thought if you created this brick and this platform where you could uh, snap these little electronic uh, building blocks together, they snapped together with magnets. So you couldn't make a mistake. There was nothing dangerous about them. The circuits were exposed so you could see what was going on inside. Uh, they were beautiful, colorful, white, had these neon candy-colored connectors on them, so they were attractive, they were gender-neutral, and they were really meant to emulate the world around you, light, sound, sensors, motors, uh, solar panels, actuators, all sorts of things that you would experience in products that were around you, but now they were easy to access for non-engineers, no need to have a degree, no need to read a manual, no need to learn how to program ahead of using them. You just pick up and play and suddenly you're an inventor. What I loved about them is which you, you touched upon there is the design of them. And I think that appealed to a lot of children and adults, actually, that played around with them when they first came out. And also when I think when you're talking about Lego and how many children play with Lego, I mean, you go in my day, you'd go to any nursery and there was those big Lego bricks. They wouldn't have the little ones in case the kids decided to chomp on them, but they'd have the bigger ones. And I did notice that little bits over time, it kind of evolved as most businesses do. And it went, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of went from being 
something that designers can prototype on or, or children can play with to focusing mainly on children. Like a lot of the marketing was around children becoming inventors, which is obviously fantastic. And you ended up, it wasn't little bits in thousands of schools. Absolutely. The early days, uh, like you said, were really sort of, this is a platform for invention for non-engineers. And so naturally a lot of adults liked it and designers in particular who were interested in incorporating technology into their designs, whether industrial design, whether fashion design, whether architecture, they really loved little bits and they were using them in their prototyping. But then we also saw a cohort of kids that were using them and were asking a lot of questions. They would take two bits together, snap them and, and be like, why did this light come on? Why didn't the light come on when I did this? Oh, this button is so similar to the button in my bedroom to, uh, to turn the light on. Or, oh, this reminds me of a nightlight. Or is this how an elevator uh, button works? And so they had all these questions about the real world. And I sort of realized that, wow, we could really affect their the way they think about the world and the way they feel more empowered to participate and create in it as opposed to just learn how to use it. And so we sort of, you know, I don't want to say pivoted, but focused, focused on kids. Uh, and we focused on two markets. We focused on the, the toy market, meaning parents and sort of uncles and aunts and grandparents buying the toys for their kids at home. And this was sort of very focused on Christmas and very much kind of like educational toy. And then we had another uh, market that was the uh, schools, uh, schools integrating a little bits into their STEM, STEAM programs, uh, doing after school, lots of libraries. Uh, and yes, hundreds of thousands of schools, libraries, after school programs around the world ended up using them. And we're, you know, uh, I think in one of my, my last counts, something was, you know, two million kids were participating and playing with little bits. And it's, it's numbers that I'm very proud of. And over, um, and over 40% of the user base was girls, uh, and which was unheard of in the field. Uh, uh, Lego um, user base was around 10% girls. And when you look at Lego robotics and, and Lego Star Wars products, et cetera, the numbers were, were similar. So they, we, we really worked very, very hard to make it gender appealing to all genders, ages, uh, kids that learned kind of in different uh, modalities. Uh, that was a really important piece, piece of being inclusive. Yeah, that's the thing. Some people didn't realize, I think, that from the get-go, you were focused on making it gender neutral. And I remember when Little Bits came out, and actually my child was born in 2011. So in his early years, we'd see it everywhere. We'd go to the Science Museum and in London and see it, and it was fantastic. And also the fact that it was founded by a female, an engineer, you know, that to me was so appealing and so exciting because I had worked in tech from 2006, and we rarely saw any women in the press, in the tech press. You never heard about women. And it was one of the reasons I actually reached out to you. You might not remember, but I reached out to you in 2016 and you, you weren't able to do it. But I wanted an interview for a book that I did called Female Innovators at Work. And my sole purpose behind it was the fact that I really felt the tech press weren't covering women and the business press weren't covering women. Yet there were so many brilliant female founders. And I always believed that if we could show the world where these women were and what they were doing, it would inspire the next generation of women in. I didn't think women looking at the press and just seeing Mark Zuckerberg were going to be attracted to the field. And I knew that one way to kind of combat that was to highlight the women that were already there. So you obviously created an incredible legacy with Little Bits. One last question I have about that is I listened to an interview the other day with that you'd done with Joanne Wilson, 
who, for those that don't know, on Twitter, I think she's called Gotham Gal. But she was obviously an early investor and she said that she absolutely believed in you when Little Bits was just an idea in a tiny 10 by 10 office. So I wanted to ask you for all the founders that are starting something, especially those that are inventing as well. And they think, oh, my God, you know, is this ever going to work? Obviously, having an early backer, someone that believes in your idea is extremely important. So I just want to ask you, how did you go about finding those early backers, whether it was financial or just somebody supporting your idea? Well, I think to, to the previous point that you were mentioning, yes, the press doesn't talk enough about uh, female founders. And there is actually a little bit of a, a sad phenomenon, which is now they are talking more and more and, and featuring more women founders. But it's sort of like the pendulum swings too far. They end up sort of, I don't know how to say, you know, creating these like mythical uh, mm. characters out of these founders and so when you when somebody rises so much in public opinion then their fall also tends to be bigger and so you get these very highlighted stories like Elizabeth Holmes or, or, or founders like that who end up uh, sort of really tarnishing a lot of other women founders reputation so you know what what I would like to see more is just like regular stories that don't just like try to make a hero out of the woman and don't just you know, then then tear her down like she represents the whole gender. Just regular stories about founders every day that happen to be women, that happen to be from minorities, that happen to be from, uh, you know, that black, that happen to be immigrants, and just more stories in a regular day to day, so that there's more variety and there's more of them. Uh, I think is what you know is is necessary to be more inviting to a next generation of founders coming in. Um, in terms of sort of how did I find my early backers? You know, it's advice that I give often as much as possible to any founder that I know is, you know, Joanne invested very, very early on. And many of my first investors invested early on and they took a big chance on me. But it also wasn't just a napkin sketch. Um, I came with a prototype. I came with a working product that I had made with my hands and I could show them physically what I meant uh, when I said uh, I wanted to create a platform for invention. And so in my case, it was a hardware product. So there was kind of a hardware component to show. But for 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 um, other people that want to create a company that's a software company, uh, a web company, uh, a store, a magazine, uh, a piece of a, a line of a, furni a furniture line, a clothing line, no matter what it is, you have to have a sort of a prototype and a little bit of a mood board of what you're going for. Uh, because just a napkin sketch, just a deck, it doesn't, I find, do it for people. It doesn't inspire uh, people. And, and there is something that happens when a founder and an inventor shows something they've made. They light up. And so when you light up, you light up the person in front of you. Uh, and I find when you have something to show, when you're doing a show and tell, that happens. Uh, so my advice is whatever it is that you're inventing, you're founding, company you're starting, you know, do, do not walk into a meeting with a deck. You need the deck because you need some of the, what's my total addressable market, et cetera. You need some of those things, but that's not the, the thing that people are going to invest in. They're going to invest in uh, your vision, your energy, your excitement, and sampling of the future that you're putting in front of them. But yes, I am very grateful to the early uh, believers and investors, whether they were early investors, early employees that joined when I could pay very small amounts or some early on, I had interns that I wasn't paying at all, early customers that bought the product without any backing, didn't have any certifications, uh, the packaging was wonky, 
all the early people that believe in you are necessary because the early days are very difficult and you want to give up every single day. And so every one of these people ends up sort of lifting you when you're in a pit of despair mm. and they, they matter. Absolutely. Actually, my next question is about community, but just on, on something you just said there about these people matter and their backing matters. I read somewhere that you had a Slack channel at work. I think it was called The Moment. And can you just quickly tell me about that? Because I thought it was a really lovely story. Yeah, in the early days uh, of Little Bits, every time we would navigate we'd be on Twitter, we'd be on Facebook, we would be out in the world somewhere and we'd see uh, little bits in an unexpected place or a kid inventing something or uh, we would see a picture of a parent that posted their kid when they snapped the first two bits together, a light came on and their, and their kid's eyes opened wide, things like that. We call that the moment, the, the moment when you snap two bits together, something happens and you go, whoa, I made that happen. That moment was extremely important. And that moment was designed uh, in the product to make sure that it was a crisp moment in time that gave you immediate feedback that you made something work. Because for us, it was a moment of empowerment where you suddenly think, I made that happen. I wonder what else I could make happen. And so the channel was called The Moment and was a collection of these pictures, these tweets, these messages that we would get from kids and adults uh, from all over the world that were experiencing the moment. And it would be, you know, um, a kid that said, I worked all weekend on this uh, pet feeder and I turned it on and it worked and they're like jumping up for joy. Or uh, you see a teacher uh, that's trying to kind of explain, uh, I don't know, the laws of uh, gravity uh, to kids and it's not getting through and she creates some kind of a contraption to show them uh, how gravity is operating and they get it and there's a tweet around that moment or you see it sort of at home when uh, a kid, uh, a, a grandparent uh, gets a, a kid, a little bit uh, kid and the grandparent uh, and the kid play together because the grandparent remembers the days of that they were playing Heathkit or they were playing with chemistry sets. And it becomes a bonding moment across generations between the grandparent and the kid. And those were, we had a Slack channel, you know, later when we started using Slack, where we shared all of those stories and they were reminding us all the time of what the mission was and why we were doing what we're doing and why we had to struggle through the, the pains of making hardware, the difficulties of designing electronics, the difficulty of managing 500 the product of SKU counts and, and international supply chain. There's a lot of very difficult stuff in that, in that whole sort of setup. And, and the moment was what inspired us to, to always keep pushing. I love that idea. And I think it would be so useful for founders to have, I've heard of people having like writers, a folder on their uh, Dropbox or wherever, where they just keep notes that people have said because there'll be so many times when they get hammered by the press or a bad review and they just go to that folder to get back some uh, energy to keep going but on the note of community as well like I said earlier on I think that's such a thread in your life and I know that you've created communities around little bits around technology in Lebanon when you went back there back in I think it was 2009 I heard you talk about how you were going to set up little bits over there but I guess that part of the world wasn't ready because you, you couldn't find investment and, and the right kind yeah. of people to be around. But what does community mean to you? And what are you doing at the moment that's linked to community? Community is really important to me because, you know, invention creation is a, I believe, a community activity. I don't believe, or at least not I don't believe, it doesn't resonate with me 
the idea of a lone inventor in their garage with their hair uh, mm-hmm. on fire and inventing on their own. It just doesn't, I, I don't relate to it. I find community, I find the invention is a collaborative exercise. You get inspired from the people around you. They challenge your thoughts. They take you in different directions. The more diverse your environment, the better. And it's sort of how I feel inspired. And so I've been part of many communities that have really inspired me. Um, Early on, when I started to tinker around a little bit, I became part of the open hardware community and I co-founded with a friend of mine something called the Open Hardware Summit, where we created sort of a community of people that believed in open source, but were trying to apply open source to hardware. And so what were the complexities around that compared to software? What do you do when there, there's cost to replicate? What do you do when there's cost to, to develop, etc.? And we created a conference that then became an online community that then became, now the conference has been running for almost 12 years. Uh, it became a standard. It became a logo certification that you put on boards. And the community continues to run up until today. Um, and even, you know, resulted in an open hardware license that ended up being used at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider. Then I founded a community in Lebanon in 2009. My dad was very sick. I went back to Beirut from New York and I, you know, wanted to start little bits there. Um, and I found myself very lonely and alone. And I decided to start a community. I took an old house, a very traditional old Lebanese house that had a little bit of an internal courtyard and I started a place called Karaj which is sort of the Arabic uh, transliteration of garage and invited a bunch of tinkers and hackers and programmers to kind of be part of the space we did events we did workshops uh, we collaborated on some projects and it was sort of for me kind of an attempt at recreating some of the labs that I was part of Um, I ended up not starting little bits there. It was difficult to get funding and to get off the ground. So it, you know, that lab didn't last, lasted a couple of years only, but then, you know, started little bits uh, and little bits had a huge community, but multiple communities. In fact, there was a community of kids and inventors. There was a community of teachers uh, that would share together curriculum and they would sort of talk about how they integrate little bits in their, their classroom. We had a community of developers at one point that were developing their own bits and their own integrations into other things. And so we sort of experimented with multiple different community, Internet of Things community also, we were really part of, uh, and we helped kind of ignite. And that was a lot of fun. And then when I sold Little Bits in 2019, and shortly after, obviously, the pandemic hit, again, I found myself without a community, and that's not a comfortable place for me. Um, and I ended up, you know, being on the lookout for the what's the next community I'd like to be part of. And by happenstance, uh, a few months after a little bit, in October 2019, a revolution in Lebanon started. I was in uh, New York. I woke up on a Saturday morning uh, and I saw online on social media uh, that these gigantic protests had erupted in Lebanon. Basically, the people were suddenly fed up with the government that was had just started the tax, wanted to tax uh, WhatsApp. And after they've taxed every single uh, supposedly free service and product in in the country, they were now wanting to tax WhatsApp because they wanted to steal more money from the people. And that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And suddenly a revolution erupted in Lebanon against corruption, against uh, against crime, against the, you know, internal terrorism from the ruling class, against sort of the lack of services. And that revolution inspired me a lot. And I felt that I was seeing sort of my compatriots 
uh, fight for uh, democracy, fight for a better future, fight for their country. And I got on a plane two hours later and I was on the street next day protesting and my new community became the revolution of Lebanon. I've been now involved in it since October 2019. I co-founded with some friends of mine a platform called Dalil Thawra, which means Guide to the Revolution. It became a platform to help inform people that have never been politically involved how to get involved with the revolution, whether through protests, whether through uh, their own events, whether donations, whether to starting initiatives, whether in, in political speech or research, etc. We became kind of the platform to help democratize democracy, if you like. <laughs> I'm still involved in that. Now, the past about year uh, and a half, I've been working specifically on the elections, which are coming up in, on May 15 in, in 10 days. May 15 will be the parliamentary election, and we're trying to get a whole new uh, class of parliamentarians that are going to be civic-minded, democratic, diverse, educated, clean, to hopefully rewrite the future of, of the country. It's amazing. And I've really been impressed how you use social media to get the word out. Like I know that you use Instagram a lot, and it's a great way for you to, I guess, rally the troops. What do you think the role social media plays? It obviously has two sides to it. It can be absolutely fantastic and empower a lot of people. And on the other hand, it can be quite, you know, a not favorable place for a lot of people. In terms of how you use social media, how do you feel about somebody like Elon Musk taking it over? Have you got any thoughts about that and how you wish it would go? The two things are true. Social media is very powerful. It, it is a great it is a great way to meet and grow a community, to participate in conversations with people that you wouldn't otherwise be able to around you. It's a way to learn new things. I learn a lot on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok. I I really, you know, are, am able to curate interests that I have that I would have a hard time kind of finding other places. So it's very powerful. It's powerful to rally the troops. It's been very effective for us in the Lebanese revolution and working towards the election to get to people in diaspora that were, you know, had lost connection with Lebanon or were not planning to vote. Uh, that's absolutely true. The other side of social media, it also is a scary place because bullying is a very real thing. Hate speech is a very real thing. Misinformation is a very real thing. Bias in the way technology and social media is designed is a very real thing. The large majority of social media companies are owned, operated, and even the developers working on them are of a certain archetype. They are often white males. They're of a certain generation. They don't understand that a lot of the downfalls of social media don't impact them the way they impact minorities, women, uh, uh, people of different sexualities, etc., cetera. Uh, and so they don't design with these potential biases in mind. They don't design with these potential risks in mind. And they don't design with enough care for the recipients of some of these dangers. So I think my rallying cry is always to get more uh, minorities and women and, and people of different diverse backgrounds to get into these companies, to take leadership positions in these companies, to become designers and developers of these products so that they can really bring their own experiences. But obviously, it's not all in their hands. This industry has to sort of be inviting and, and recruit them and keep them and, and create uh, hospitable environments for them. So uh, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, how do I feel about Elon Musk taking over Twitter? I mean, in one sense, you can't 
uh, fault him because you know Elon Musk owns Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg owns Facebook, uh, Jeff Bezos owns uh, owns uh, the Washington Post. So you can't kind of fault him. But I mean, the, clearly this whole system doesn't work. It can't be like this. That some of these biggest communication channels in the world that have the most influence on teenagers, on kids, on elections are held by by these individuals that now have oversized uh, power. So, you know, I don't, I'm not going to direct my um, sort of criticism to Elon Musk in particular, because those other cases are still true. And it, even if you solve the Twitter Elon Musk situation, you haven't solved it for others. The whole, the whole system has to change. We, um, there is a certain point where a social media company a technology company becomes so powerful that it needs, I think, the attention that is put on news, the attention that is put, uh, that is in the way other channels are regulated. Things, you know, you, you cannot go on the news and speak unfettered without the news organization getting some accountability. I mean, that's also not always the case in Lebanon and in, in America, unfortunately, but in like in theory. So, you know, social media is powerful. Social media is dangerous. These two things are true. Uh, definitely what I believe is that the solution is not to disengage from it uh, because it's a reality that's not going away. I taught a class with varsity tutors called Social Media, Control It Before It Controls You. It was a free online class that's meant to focus on how social media works, how to understand it, and how to use it to your advantage. It's directed at kids in particular because of all the harms that we know social media affects, particularly teenage girls with uh, body image issues. It affects, well, boys, girls and boys, but does have an outsized influence on girls, etc. And so the class was really to say, don't disengage from it. Don't pretend that it's not there. Don't tell your kids you're not allowed to go on social media. That's not realistic. It's not going away. It's here. Engage with it. Learn from it. Understand how their business models work. Understand how you are the product in many places. Understand how you are, um, you are what is bought and sold. And if you know that, potentially you can use it to your own advantage. Yes, absolutely. I've got two more questions, but I know we're running out of time. So I'm going to go with one question, if that's okay. I wanted to talk to you about motherhood, but I think because I don't want to cut you short and I know you've got to scoot off, I'm going to ask one last question, which I ask everyone that I have on the podcast. And that is, if you can go back in time, what is one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Aya? Interesting question. It's, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm going to do a two in one and I'm going to take kind of the previous question that you were going to ask that we chatted oh, yeah. about before and combine it. Uh, we talk about uh, motherhood, actually. My piece of advice to every girl and woman early on in your career, freeze your eggs so that you don't have to worry about this issue uh, question later in life, whether you think you might uh, want to have kids or not early on you know, the realities of the way our bodies are made is uh, there is a moment where biology starts to put pressures on you that maybe you're not ready to make a decision on, or maybe, you know, you don't want to, or maybe you're afraid, or maybe society puts pressure on you. Get that pressure off of you early on so that you don't have to worry about it and then live your life kind of pressure free and make your own decisions at the right time. I've recently become a mother four and a half months ago and I've spent a lot of my time as an entrepreneur when I was running the company, stressing out about how I was going to do it, how I was going to become a mother. I knew I wanted to, but I was also very stressed and working very hard. And I felt the pressure of the clock ticking. And I think 
a lot of uh, that time, I, I sort of became not present in these two topics, either the company or the thoughts about motherhood and family. And I think that really sort of sometimes some logistics need to just be kind of put on the side. And that's something that I wish I did earlier. But I'm very happy now, I have a four and a half month old, and, and I'm now sort of getting back to the world, thinking about what my next thing is, very much want to continue my entrepreneurial career and develop a new thing, but also now have a, a larger family that I want to think about incorporating together. And I'm actually excited about that new chapter. And we're excited for you. Congratulations. And I can't wait to hear. I know you're going to do more. I know there's more from you that's going to come. And obviously, enjoy motherhood. The early days are the toughest, as we said before, before we came on this. But it's fantastic. And I think your advice is actually really sound because no one talks about it. And I had so many friends because I think our generation is the first generation where we haven't been expected to have kids at a younger age. And so we've gone out to make these careers for ourselves. And then you're right, the clock starts ticking. And unfortunately, until science and mother nature changes, that's a very real threat that we have, like time. So I think it's great advice. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the brilliant Aya Badir. And please don't forget to review the podcast and subscribe wherever it is you listen to your podcast to ensure that you're one of the first to listen to new weekly episodes with inspiring founders and inventors like Aya. And thanks so much to Aya for a wonderfully wide-ranging conversation. Some of the most important lessons I took from this chat was that we need to ensure our purpose is front and centre of our startups. We need a grand vision and a greater mission because running a startup is hard and that North Star can really help, especially on the darker days. I also think the Slack channel that she mentioned in the interview called The Moment was a great idea. We should all have a folder where we keep special moments from customers, backers and supporters so that we can dip into them whenever we need a little boost. Thanks again to Aya and thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay well.